yes! We are back! Hello, fellow songwriters, and welcome to Season 2, Episode 2 of the How Songs Are Made podcast, where we talk to notable artists about their songwriting process. I'm your host, Trey Xavier, and today I'll be talking to my good friend Al Levy of the band Doth about how they write songs. Episode 2, you say? What? What happened to Episode 1? Well... With season two, I decided to make a few changes to how the podcast is done, and episode one has already been shot, edited, and will be found where all of the new episodes will be found on the brand new How Songs Are Made podcast YouTube channel, along with clips from previous episodes as well, and some other stuff. Episode one was with uh, Visions of Atlantis, and it was... Really, really awesome and informative, super fun. If you want to see that one, as well as all of the new episodes moving forward where they're going to live, uh, you're going to want to subscribe there. You can find the link to that in the description. Um, Or if you're watching this after the live stream, then you're already watching this on the new channel. So just hit the subscribe button so that you can get all of those new episodes moving forward. They're still going to be live streamed here on the Trey Xavier channel, but then I'm going to private them after the stream and the final VOD will be posted to the How Songs Are Made channel. And then of course also released as audio podcasts after the fact, as per usual. And now, their first new song in 13 years, No Rest, No End, is out now on Metal Blade Records. Please give a warm welcome to my guest, Al Levy of Doth. Hello. This is, I'm pretty sure, Podcast number six for us that we have done together. I think that's right. That's right. Because you've been on URM and yeah. Riffard several times. Uh, we can't. Yeah. And I was on yours too. We once uh, in LA. We have to stop meeting like this. I think. But great to have you back. It's I. I think we keep doing it because it's it's great. We're have we always have a great time and we always get to riff on different topics ranging from guitar to also to music to other. things. Music stuff and more guitar. <laughs> to guitar. Music. And music. And uh, guitar, some guitar and, and music. music stuff. So today I thought we'd uh, take a real hard left turn from those normal topics and talk about some music. <laughs> something outside of our yeah, wheelhouse. Something really guitar far outside. But uh, really, um, this will be somewhat different because we're mostly going to be talking about songwriting and uh, specifically mostly about the new Doth single, which is called No Rest, No End. Um, and I think um, maybe maybe we start with talking about the sort of the rebirth of the band. You've told me the story a bit, and I've read it on your, you know, Facebook posts and stuff like that. But give me like a just a TLDR of getting the band back together. I actually tried to get the band back together a few times over the years and it just didn't work out. And I had this idea in my head that it had to be the way that it was because that wasn't working out. I just was canning the idea, but I literally thought about it every single day and it was just burning a hole in my head. Like I just couldn't drop it like an obsessive freak. Uh, I was just forever pissed about it. Uh, because I felt like we stopped 
right as we were starting to actually get momentum, we just stopped. And um, so all these years I've been sitting there with this, like, uh, like this feeling of shit being unfinished. So in September of 2021, I injured myself and went from a period of being constantly active working out like four or five hours a day and to like zero, literally zero, just like on a couch, unable to move and had all this energy and needed something to do with that energy. Anyone listening who uh, works out knows that when you stop working out, like it wreaks havoc on your psychology. So I needed something to do with that physical energy and figured why not play guitar again? I didn't play guitar in eight years. So why not just play guitar again? It's going to suck. No one's going to hear it, but I need something to do with this energy. But because um, I'm the way that I am, like after about a month, it started to get more serious. And after about another month, like I stopped sounding like a total beginner in, in a guitar store. And then after about another month, I just riffs started happening and I can only write in my own style so it sounded like Doth, and I just hit Sean Z up and asked him if he wanted to do it again. The thing about it was that obviously it didn't work out for a reason the first time around, and I'm not the kind of person who thinks that shit'll just work out magically a second time. Like there are reasons for why stuff doesn't work out, and um, my experience now running the companies like URM and Riffhard. I have a very clear idea of what kinds of things make mm-hmm. something sustainable and what kinds of things make something toxic. Uh, so my conversation with Sean Z was I'm down to do it, but only if we do it right. Like if we start to encounter the problems we had before, we have two choices, either I'm out or we do this the right way regardless of who's on board. If no one from the past is on board, we get new people. I know lots of people now who are fucking great. Like, we do this right. And uh, just started writing music. Um, Got Krim on board once we realized Kevin wasn't going to work out, uh, which uh, Krim is unbelievable. Started writing with Krim. And, uh, you know, before you knew it, there were actual songs before you knew it, they were actually good. And uh, just shit started to take on a momentum all of its own. And the moment that we announced that we were coming back, literally that day, uh, Ryan from Metal Blade got in touch with me uh, to see how yeah. serious we were. Like, is this just going to be a song? Are you actually going to be doing this for real? Like, what's the, what's the situation? Yeah. So um, told him we're doing it for real. Obviously needed to hear music because I'm not going to just take our word for it being good after this long. But the moment we had a mix from Jens Bogren, we sent it to Ryan. And somehow at the same time, all these other labels, I don't know how, I don't know how this happens, but it does. Like we suddenly they were all in touch and really, I thought we were going to be indie for like two years and that no one was going to care at all. And before we even put out the song, like we decided to sign to Metal Blade, and uh, you know, here we are. It's a real thing again. Crazy enough. 
never thought it would happen. But I never thought. It did. Yeah, it's quite the story. I mean, a comeback after that long, you know? I know that feeling, putting something out after a very, very, very long time. And yeah, it's weird. You gotta, um, yeah, it, you either gotta make it happen or it's not gonna happen. It's not going to just happen. So the, you're the driving force here, but you've got something that makes people want to come on board, want to jump on board and do it. You know, like you got to have something to offer somebody like Krim. It's not just like, you know, he's plays with a lot of super sick bands. Like, you know, he plays in Septic Flesh, right? Yeah. And he was in Decapitated. Yeah. And that kind of thing. And like, you can't just be like, hey, man, want to jam? <laughs> you know. Hey, man, you got to trust me. This is going to be great. It, and I will say my friend Jesse Zaretti, who, he's in the band now and He's a, he's a professional composer, does stuff for like Marvel, for Netflix, for all kinds of stuff that can't be mentioned. But when I told him I was doing this, he was just behind me the whole time. And even when the first stuff I was writing sounded like, you know, like a 14-year-old's first demo, he kept pushing me to keep going and keep going. So, and Sean Z also kept pushing me to keep going. So I had a lot of encouragement from them. And then Krim seemed like he never doubted it either, which is crazy. So I think I did all the doubting for everybody. It's kind of scary because if you want to work with people who are legit, you have to give them something legit to work with. And when you haven't done it in a while, you have no evidence, right? Like if you have been putting music out consistently and getting praise for it and fans and making sales, then you have some evidence that things are good, that at least that you have something worth attempting. But after a decade, like it can be kind of strange because we all know those people who ride on the past and who did something cool 10 or 15 or 20 years ago. And that's their claim to fame. And honestly, that was starting to kill me to <laughs> be turning into that person. So, uh, there are lots of reasons. For if you've ever been to the Rainbow in L.A. or anywhere around there, <laughs> there are like hundreds of these fucking dudes who are like, hey, man, you know, I used to play here back in 87. We uh, we opened for Motley Crue and they made that their whole personality for the last like f almost 40 fucking years or whatever. And they just never uh, they never moved on. And that you nobody wants to be that guy. That's the worst no. guy. Especially with what uh, with the companies that you know you are in Riffhard, showing people how to do this stuff in real life, and then I haven't done anything in a long time. I was starting to feel like uh, this is feeling weird because the whole thing behind you are in Riffhard is that it's people who do it in real life showing you how to do it in real life. As, <laughs> yeah, like that's like the whole reason it works, and so I was starting to feel like if I don't do something like uh, I'm starting to enter that full of shit territory. Can't let that happen. Yep. Well, on that note, we're going to talk about how you started, how you did the thing. Um, there's really yeah. only one question on this podcast um, and all the rest are follow-ups. And that is what is your usual songwriting process like and how was it uh different this time around or what did you do yeah differently um 
Re- real quick though, I think your uh, your mic gate might be a little strong. So I'm, I'm, I just noticed that I'm maybe you're cutting off the some of the beginnings of the words. I just want to make sure. The, I want How to about sure now? Oh, I feel like you got a bit hotter, but that's good. Ch- t- talk again. Hey, hey, hey. Oh, you're a bit louder. I can turn it down. How's that? That's a little bit better. A little bit more. How's that? Oh, still very hot. How's that? Still very hot. <laughs> still very hot. And how's that? That's pretty good. All right. How are we feeling at home, folks? Levels good. Levels good. Levels good, everyone. We better. <laughs> All right. So now. All right. Now. Answers a question. Yeah. What's the? What was it right? Like basically, what was it? Uh, what was the process for writing this song? How did you go about it? Okay. Um. So. This is an interesting thing for me because. Uh, in lots of ways, I feel like I'm better at guitar now and better at writing now than I was before the break. However, I didn't do any writing or playing during the break. So I've asked myself, how is that possible that like, it's almost like I took no time off. And then I realized it's not that I took no time off from music. I've been doing URM and Riff Hard this whole time and talking to great musicians and producers and talking about it the whole time. And so that feeds into my theory that what you feed your brain is ultimately what's going to influence what comes out. So I've always thought you need to be very, very guarded over your influences. If you don't want something coming out in your music, don't take that in because your brain is going to digest it. So I've had years of talking to people about how they've gotten better, how they do the thing they do. And so that was in my subconscious the entire time. And one thing that I remembered from back in the day was that for me, it's like a light bulb. I consider it like a light bulb, creativity Mm -hmm. um, and inspiration. I, it's not my, it's not, the light bulb's job to turn itself on and then we have a song. It's my job to do whatever I can do to get the light bulb to turn on and then we're good. So I always approach writing as doing everything I can to get that creativity light bulb on. And then once it's on, great stuff happens. Like, And it happens quickly too. The challenge is just getting to that state of mind where the light bulb is on. And for me, sometimes it requires just sitting down and writing over and over and over again, sometimes for weeks. So if I haven't written in a while, it'll sometimes take, take me three weeks before I get something that's like really sick. Um, and so for this, when I first started writing new music for Doth, I had been writing for about two months and like the ideas were getting better there's like some almost songs like you could tell like if you if we were to take this like maybe it could be something but i just kept doing it every single day even if i only had 10 minutes i would try to at least write something and then one day that section those opening arpeggios in the first heavy part uh just came out it's just like i sat down and they just came out and it's like boom light bulb is on here we go and i always know it when that happens i always know that the light bulb has come on and i guess we are activated and at that point 
and I've always done this too. I just drop whatever else I'm doing. So like, say I'm practicing and I have a practice routine for guitar. If the light bulb comes on and something awesome happens, I drop what I'm practicing and immediately start trying to get that down. And so most of the beginning of this was just trying to get myself to the point where the stuff I was writing was good. Um, and then from that point forward, it was just a lot of torture, basically. <laughs> Another thing I do, so basically, in addition to priming myself to where I'm like in the state of mind to do great stuff, I don't just accept the first thing I write. I think that that's where a lot of bands go wrong is they start writing and the first thing they write is the first riff in the song. The second thing they write is the second riff in the song. The third thing they write is the third <laughs> riff and so on and so forth. That's not how I do things. Like when I start writing, I don't consider that we even have an idea until I have my first thing that like is undeniably good. And then from that point forward, I generally just erase everything I did and start to use that as the basis to build from. So with that said, I wrote version one of this song that was like seven minutes long. And the version that you hear now only has about two minutes out of those original seven minutes. Like I gutted the song several times. So we can get into the actual nitty gritty details of how these parts came together, but that's like the general process is being super brutal about if the ideas are worth pursuing or not. And just going back at it and back at it and back at it until there is an idea worth pursuing. And once that happens, seeing it through as far as I can and being very brutal again about, is this actually a song or uh, are these just parts? Like, even if they sound cool, like, is this a song or am I, is it just like a meandering bunch of good ideas? And I'll just, I will cut stuff ruthlessly and uh, just, again, just keep going at it and at it and at it until there's something great. Like it is a lot of that and it takes a while sometimes and there's a lot of torture involved. Well, it's uh, less torture for the audience if you take the time yes. to experience that torture to put it together right. So for the folks watching at home on uh, on my channel here, we talked about this a tiny bit, I think, on the Riff Hard podcast that, that I was on recently. But I think you said that you didn't originate the term Riff Salad, but you're where I heard it from. And I use it all the fucking time because most of what goes on here on the channel is me listening to amateur compositions and critiquing them. And what you described is that most painful of local band song uh, structures, A, B, C, D, E, F, G. And then, you know, it's like, and then we play Steve's riff four times. Eight, it's eight times? Eight times, Steve. Okay. And then we play Bill's riff. It's a really good one. You got to make sure you wait. And, like, it's just, uh, it's painful because they they won't you know, they won't be that brutal. The, they won't visit the brutality upon their children, which are their riffs or ideas or whatever. No, you got to be willing to kill your children. And if you hear my riff salads, some of them have good parts in them, but you have to remember, like, I just, I compartmentalize it. Like sometimes I will do a writing exercise where 
I will write something and then say I write a two guitar part. I'll take one of those guitar parts and then copy paste it to whatever's next silence wise in the DAW. And I'll write a part on top of that. And then I have two guitar parts and I'll take whatever the new part was and I'll copy paste that to the next set of empty measures. And I'll write a part on that and it'll get to like 15 minutes to where it's like constantly evolving and some cool stuff happens, but I would never dream of turning that into a song. It's just a writing exercise. And so those riff salads, I believe that not all, but a whole lot of those bands that you think suck. It's not that they suck so much as that they are just not finishing their songs and they're, I mean, they're just presenting they're presenting basically the equivalent of like a scratch pad. Yeah. And calling it a song. Yeah. Like it's not, it's not a song yet. Now I realize that there's some bands that don't really repeat parts much, but, and they do it well, that's fine. I'm not talking about those bands. Like if you're a tech band or a progressive band, who's able to pull that off. Awesome. But what I've noticed is even those bands that don't have like traditional structures, like Demu Borgir or something with a lot of their songs that like some of, some of their songs have repetitions, not all do, but they're yeah. awesome. They're still using a theme and developing that theme. It's not just random shit is what I'm saying. Like there's a <laughs> lot of uh, theme and variation. That's something I did a lot in this song. So there's uh, there's a lot of theme and variation, and lots of the parts that come in are just another version of one of the main themes. Uh, and that's part of what allows you to have lots of interesting parts, but that don't just sound like random shit thrown in. Yes. So it's even if it's something that's takes a completely different form a different sort of arrangement or whatever it's still based on the same theme um same idea motif yeah so it's not worlds away exactly so if you look at like for instance the clean outro of the song that happens at four minutes and 39 seconds so that four minutes and 39 seconds there's a clean outro that's two guitars sexy key change thanks that fades out but if you go to um, 20 seconds, where it first gets heavy, it is the same chords, the same melody, different arrangement, but it's the same thing. Yeah. So I do that kind of stuff awesome. a lot. But I love that. It's not, it's not as simple as just like, take a part and see how many different ways you can do it. Like, there's an actual like emotional and flow reason for when I do it, but that way still... That outro is an actual outro to the song. It's not just like some creepy, beautiful, clean part. It's the main theme of the song. The second main theme of the song is at 37 seconds. I call that Dothriff 1. And that's the whole song is built off of what I just showed you. But there's the melody theme again on top of it. Yep, exactly. So that was basically taking both of the main themes and combining them. So basically... You have main theme one, main theme two, and combine them, and then into the verse, which is a key change. And uh, the reason for the key change on the verse was because with all this metal stuff, how do you know where to start the vocals? Like, 
it needs to be like unquestionable that this is where the verse starts. Like you could have sick vocals over any of those parts if you want, but by having a key change right there after the main themes were established. So you establish the main themes, boom, key change, feel change, arrangement change, that sets up the verse properly. But basically a lot of the song is just taking those ideas. It's not as simple of an, as, like I said, it's not like an exercise in cycling them through keys or arrangements, but it's utilizing themes that I established because it's a song. It's all supposed to be, it's all supposed to be one big idea. Yeah. You're, you're sort of telegraphing these uh, changes of the part to the listener by using dynamic shifts, a key change, um, some uh, texture changes and stuff like that. And that sort of signifies to the listener where they are in the song, like where in the ride they're at. And that works really well for me. Man, I think that key changes are drastically underutilized in metal. I mean, especially for a guitar-based genre, transposing on the guitar is the easiest thing of all the fucking instruments. <laughs> Unless it's using uh, open strings, which most of them are, and then it's harder to do. The thing about it is it's not easy to do it seamlessly. It's easy to technically do it because, you know, on the piano, if you do it, like suddenly you have like some weird layout of keys, like whereas on a guitar, it's just frets. So you just play, you know, if even if you're just transposing the same riff, you just play the same thing, just move it yeah, around. Just scoot it. But I think to do it seamlessly is a little bit more difficult because you have to think about how you set up the key change. You have to think about, does the key change even work? Like, does it take you somewhere? Does it make the song sound more tense? Does it make the song sound more resolved? Like, what's it even doing? But I use key changes all over the place. Even in uh, the guitar solo, for instance, like the guitar solo at 239, it's a dual solo. There First is Rafael Trujillo. And then he's trading off with Spiro Ducia. So if you don't know them, they are what I consider to be like the next evolution of Shredder. Basically, it goes Raphael, Spiro, Raphael. And when you have like two guitar players and you want to differentiate their parts, one of the easiest things you can do is to have the keys, the, not the keyboards, but the keys change underneath their solo. So it's very, very clear who's playing. So when Raphael is playing, it's in one key it shifts lower, that's where Spiro comes in. Then it goes back higher, that's where Raphael resumes. And it just, it makes it easy to know when a different player is playing. But also, the other thing that it does is it creates a solo section that isn't static, which I think a lot of is, I think solos are fucking boring for the most part, which is crazy to say, considering that like, I think one of the things about Doth that people love is great solos. But the reason that the solos are great, in addition to having great guitar players playing them, is that the parts underneath them are written to force the solo into having to develop and not just like stick on a thing and yeah. stick on an idea and just see like what kind of Olympic feat of guitar can be done. Like it actually goes, it goes somewhere. So the first solo is that 239 also slightly panned yep to differentiate and then also it's not 
obnoxiously long. No. Like, the both solos get in, blow your mind, and then some nice melodic stuff. Honestly, more than almost anything else, like, guitar solo. I like guitar solos. Obviously, I've played guitar for a long time. I care about it, you know. Um, I, I think putting them in a place in the song where it adds to the experience for the listener and, and becomes is like a dramatic tool is the number one way to get people to like your guitar solo. Because if it's in a like weird spot, like, I don't know, <laughs> like instead of the where there would be a chorus because you're a guitar player and you think that's cool, like, like people will go like, oh, okay. But if you put it like coming out of the you know, coming out of the bridge after this huge dramatic bridge and it like makes the song take off, then like even somebody who doesn't care about guitar at all will be like, ah! Yes, exactly. It's all about placement and um, where it takes the song. So in terms of structurally speaking, if you think back to the first thing we talked about, like the main theme, which is, you know, the same thing as that clean outro, that, that first main heavy theme. It gets restated three times in the song, once at the beginning, once in the middle, once at the end. And these solos come in right after the second restatement of the main theme. And so basically, if you, you look at it like there's the first section of the song, which is main theme, and then basically verse, chorus, verse, chorus, main theme. There's some stuff in between there, but like... After that, the question is, since it's the main theme being restated, like the listener might expect it to just basically loop through again. You have to do something to take it to the next place and not just have a next place because you feel you have to. Like it has to feel like it actually wants to evolve to that next place. So it seemed to me like after the main theme, what is something that has not happened yet that would really, really grab the listener because what, we're two minutes and 39 seconds in, that's the length of some songs. And most Doth songs are short. So like, if I'm gonna put out a five and a half minute song, there better be a reason for it. So at two minutes, 39 seconds to have the first solo, there had to be a really damn good reason for it. And it had to be something that was like so ear catching that you wouldn't wanna naturally stop listening to the song about there, which is, uh where I would want to stop listening to the song. Yeah. <laughs> it's always a danger. Yeah. Of, uh, of losing your listener. Totally. But I think that like key changes, key changes, feel changes, arrangement changes, but that all work around some similar themes that are good is a way to do it. Uh, one of my favorite bands, Muse, do this super super well maybe better than any rock band i can think of right now if you're talking about like actual musical themes not just like hooks not just like pop style hooks or like cool riffs like actual musical themes and like develop them properly and not use too many in a song but somehow keep on coming back with interesting sections that make sense yeah they do it great um a few bands do it great i could just keep on going on and on Ask me another question about the song or I'll just keep rambling. <laughs> In the actual process of, of writing these parts, you, so you came up with these themes after your development sessions, basically, right? Your These writing sessions and then all of a sudden, boom, the light bulb goes on, right? You've got, a th you've got that you think are worth putting the 
time and effort into developing into a full song. Yes. Um, you're structuring it out. You're thinking about all of this stuff as you go, like these themes and variations and, and the, ri- the ride that the listener is going on. How did it actually come together? Like, uh, did you demo the entire thing out, start to finish? Was it, like, pretty developed before you anybody else heard it? Or are you, like, jamming it with Krim? Are you sending him parts to work on? Or how does that... How did, how did it work chronologically? Uh, okay, so that main theme happened, and I sent that to, you know, Jesse and Sean and Krim. And was just like, I think this is cool. I, I think I should pursue it because I programmed, I programmed how it came in and then I programmed it going into that blast beat and it was just like, you know, I think we got something here. So I sent it to them and they were like, they all were like, fuck yes, do it. From there, literally it took me another week before Dothrif 1 at 37 seconds happened. And what the reason that riff happened there was because I was thinking we need like I can tell where this is going. This song is going to be over the top. We need a riff, like a riff, like a riff riff that has nothing else on it. But that's like could only be this band that if you listen to our back catalog and you hear that riff, you're like, oh, yeah, that's a, that's for sure a doth riff. I need to come up with one of those. And I hadn't come up with one of those yet. So I started learning a bunch, like relearning a bunch of our old shit. And I even pulled out demos from like 1999, got them transcribed and just started like going into our back catalog to like really try to like get myself in the mode of this band because I wanted to make sure that everything we put out, even if it sounds evolved, it has the DNA of this band all over it, all, all in that shit. So I just kept on making riffs that it's hard to describe exactly what counts as a doth riff, but typically it's in a harmonic minor. If you were to play it, if you were just to say the frets, there would be some 014 action going on on the open string. However, for the theory nerds, you might be thinking that's Phrygian dominant, and that's the fifth mode of harmonic minor. Typically, when you hear harmonic minor in metal, usually people like to play this Phrygian dominant mode. And to me, that sounds super cliche. And uh, basically, it's if you were to just think of frets, like it would be like the first fret, second fret fourth fret 014 where the open string if you're just thinking in playing it down there would be your one in that mode so i do the 014 however i don't think about it in phrygian dominant i think about it in terms of like straight up the first mode of harmonic minor so if you look at my 014 one is my root o is the major seven the you know the raised seventh degree and then four the fourth fret is like the minor third. So that makes sense. So as opposed to Phrygian dominant. Oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. So it's the same notes. However, it plays a completely different role harmonically. It's like a different harmonic context. So most, I guess, uh, signature doth riffs are in harmonic minor. They have this 014 kind of structure. However, it's not in Phrygian dominant. The second note, that half step between the zero and the one is uh, 
like I said, one is the root. Zero is not the root. I've identified that that's part of why our riffs kind of have this uh, unique thing going on. Unique but familiar because so much metal is in harmonic minor, but it's the way that we use the harmonic context that's different. So it's basically looking for a riff that kind of has that 014 action, but that is just fucking ripping. And then once I had that, I knew we had a song. So basically from that point forward, chronologically, that's where the torture begins. Because then I just try to like write what feels good next. Because like I said earlier, I don't know if what I'm writing is the actual intro or if it's like the bridge. Like, because I'm not going to say the first thing I write is the first part of the song. The second thing I write is the second part of the song. I'm open to whatever. So I was just trying to see where it would logically go. And it just ended up with like seven minutes of meandering shit. And I just wanted to quit. (laughs) I didn't know what to do with it because I kept trying to like, find a chorus and it just sounded like metal riffs. So at some point Zaretti asked me if he could do an orchestral arrangement to it. And I was like, fine, fuck it. Try. I'm ready to quit. And he did. And it was so fucking awesome that I had to have a conversation with him that went like this. This is great. You've basically shown me where this song can go. So don't get mad that I'm about to delete 80% of what you write, what you wrote <laughs> and rewrite the whole thing. Yeah. Cause he covered these seven minutes in orchestra and it was like, no, it was awesome. It was awesome, but it wasn't a song, but I could tell like that all these elements that if you just took them and like worked them in with these themes that I had, it would work. So basically I decided what riffs have zero orchestra on them? What riffs should just be a riff? What parts should have an orchestra? It's like you're driving down a road at night and your headlights are showing you what's in front of you and you can't see what's beyond those lights. But as you keep going, you start to see a little further and a little further. So then we had version two, which was kind of close to closer to the version that's here but there was no verse or chorus. It was just the really sick orchestral parts and some really sick riffs. And at that point, Krim and I were deciding if we wanted to finish this song. And he was leaning no, because it wasn't like a song yet. That We have other songs that haven't been released yet. This one was just like some sick stuff. And I asked him to please trust me and give me a weekend. I have a verse and a chorus for this. I just need to like figure it out. So I cut myself off from the world and came up with the verse and the chorus. And then we had basically up until through the solo section. And then the next torturous moment happened because then it's like, well, then what? Because there's so much music in there up to that point. Like, then what? How do you take it somewhere cool like and different? And I had no idea. Simultaneous to all this, I had learned a Bach piece on guitar. Like I just took like two days and learned this this Bach piece, which I recommend everybody do at some point. And like I didn't do anything else. I just sat there and memorized this piece of music. The very next day after that, I sat down and wrote this like Baroque section that was like harpsichord and guitar. Shout out Alex. 
<laughs> it was a uh, harpsichord and guitar, and it was like straight up Naslacord. Yeah, <laughs> dude, it was like straight up baroque music, and it was slower than the song. And I kept thinking of like, should it be faster? Should it be slower? But we had this like minute long piece of like actual music, not like neoclassical playing patterns in a scale kind of shit, like an actual piece of Baroque music that develops from start to finish with no repetitions. And Jesse kept saying, dude, that's uh, that's going to be crazy. If we get Krim on it, it's going to be nuts. It's going to be insane. I was, I was like, yeah, but it sounds so cool. as just like harpsichord and guitar. Like it sounds like legit, sounds like a legit Baroque music. Why are we going to like, take a shit on it with blast beats <laughs> but uh i uh but i listened to him and um wrote like i took the bass line and turned that like i don't mean bass line like bass guitar line like the actual bass line from the composition and turned that into quote-unquote riffs uh i call it an accompaniment and started working on drums for it and then magically it happened to be in the right key for a bridge and so then we have this song full of all this sick stuff with all these themes that work that is constantly interesting and then it goes into this baroque section kind of out of nowhere but not really that's like not what you would expect um and it has no repetitions and it just keeps on building and building and building and building in intensity and from that point forward it's home stretch like then it's just how do we get to the third chorus how do we put the exclamation point on the end of this sentence where Sean comes back in with the vocals. That's Doth riff one in a different key. That first like heavy riff from 37 seconds. It's that just played actually it's no, it's in the same key. It's just played on a single string. And then when the beat comes back in, that's where a key changes down. It's always interesting after a bridge like that to find a way to like make the song even more exciting. So, that's actually really hard to do. And the way that I figured to do it would be to modulate up with a, with a riff that already happened, which is Doth Riff 1, and do the stabs. So, And then once the beat comes in, drop it low, lower than you've heard this riff in the entire song, so that it's just like, almost like, not quite a resolution, but just fucking heavy. And then into chorus three. So uh, it, it took a long time, though. <laughs> <laughs> and that Baroque part is a nightmare. Yeah, it, it's there's a lot going on there. Um, is it? Are you using your two themes within that Baroque bit at all? You said you... No. I mean, you said you just completely wrote it separate so it wasn't uh, okay here's the thing i have a theory that like even if you're not in the same session if you write something at the exact same time it's highly likely that you're writing part of the same piece of music so it, this literally happened right at the same time as working on all this other stuff so just because it started independently i mean it fits too well i i think it's just one of those things where I was in the mode of this song and I wrote a section of this song um, independently of the other sections, but my brain was already in the keys, in the feel, 
of what this song needed to be. And that's another thing that people don't do enough. I've noticed is like connect the dots between different things that they're writing at the same period of time, which is why you have so many bands where you could copy paste the riff from one song onto another song. And there's like nothing identifiable about their songs. Like, because if you can just take a part of one song and put it on another song, then is it really a song or just ideas? So what I also try to do that a lot is to try to identify, even if like I started 10 different ideas, 10 different sessions, if it's done around the same period of time, how many of these ideas are actually meant to work with another one of these sessions? So I think that's all it was. Like, I don't, it's not just some random shit. Yeah. I mean, it, it sounds to me like it fits and it works as a very exciting bridge. Yeah. Like, had to take it somewhere I mean, cool. <laughs> yeah. And then, um, I mean, so then you've got then you've got the the third chorus to go into. Um, what did you do to make this third chorus different? How did you make it pop? Okay, nothing's different about it except for the ending out of it. Into the choruses, each one of them has a different walk up into the chorus, or like a different. There's a tag at the end of everything that precedes a chorus. Into chorus one, it's one tag into chorus two it's a different one and into chorus three it's yet a different one and so into chorus three it's the same notes as the tag leading into chorus one however uh by i did it in eighth notes instead of quarter notes the thing about it that's cool is that the chorus the rhythm guitar is like a steady eighth note pulse basically like and so it's almost like it preceded it's like it started the idea before the actual chorus started almost like i don't know it's like the riff equivalent of a reverse symbol or something going into a part so yeah so yeah. what i'm talking about is okay so course three starts at 407 like so if you go back to like i don't know four minutes you'll hear at the tail end of that riff i do this walk up in eighth notes and it goes into the chorus and it keeps those eighth notes going. So I don't know what to call that other than I just, I consider it having it the same effect as a fill or like a reverse symbol or something. Cause it's like the same feel as the chorus, but not quite the chorus and leading into the chorus. And then you open it up from palm muting. But I do that every time. Yeah. Also, another thing I'll say is the, if I had not had that part before the chorus drop down, key wise so where sean comes back in and we restate doth riff one and it starts up key wise and then when the drums come in it comes down it allows it to go to it allows it to walk up to a, a different key for the chorus it allows it to basically resolve into the chorus whereas if i hadn't done that key change before the chorus it wouldn't have like popped the right way so i think that like what you do before the part in question is what's going to make the part in question work. It's like, it's all about how you set it up. Um, Cause there's nothing different about the chorus itself, you know, except for the very, very end, but the end of the chorus isn't what's going to make the chorus pop. It's how the chorus comes in. That's going to make it pop. So it just, it had to be set up properly. One thing that, uh, I learned doing the um, I, I did like a amaranth song 
style, right? Style rip, basically. And uh, one thing that I noticed going through and doing like analysis of, of their songs, what they'll do is the chorus will be in one key and they'll uh, play the verse in a key lower, like like a whole step lower, so that when they get to the chorus, every time it's going to be a a key change up, like um, they're going to modulate up in the way that like a pop song might do, you know, to make it more exciting. But they don't actually, every time the chorus goes comes back, it feels like this. it's this modulation up, but they the choruses aren't actually higher than each other. They're all the choruses are in the same mm-hmm. key. And it's like this, it has the same effect as like, I don't know, like the end of a Celine Dion song, you know, or when she goes and does it up a, a half step or whatever and makes it really exciting, but like without the, I don't know, the like vocal strain or, or something. So you did a, you did a thing kind of like that. You, you set it up so that you've got this, you've got somewhere to go, but you've actually, you're actually just in the same place, like, right? Like, so all the choruses are in the same key yep. in, in your song, but they, but you're still modulating up into the chorus. So that's a... It works. It's a fancy pants move. The thing is, all of these like moves only work if uh, the music, like, if it like makes emotional sense, I guess. And that, so there's like an art and a craft side to it. So the actual move of modulating up into the chorus, that's a craft thing. And so if you just throw that in your songs because you're listening to this podcast and you like the song, you like this Doth song or you like that Amaranth song and you're like, okay, this is what I got to do into choruses. That's not it. The art side of it is what has to guide you. And then this craft side of it is just the technical way that you get there. But the art should always precede the technical, in my opinion. I agree. It's sort of a thing like, if you don't know that that is a thing that you can do, you might be trying to achieve the same basic uh, idea, the same emotional effect or or something like it and you just don't know that that's one way that you can do it this is just a, a tool in your belt of something in your a piece of ammunition in your uh i should have just stuck with the first metaphor um it's a tool in your tool belt that you can use in your ammo box in your ammo box um to to do that this thing i'll say though too is if people are listening to this and theory terms are like making them scared you don't have to think about this in theory terms. We're talking about modulations because we can communicate in that in that way. But I've worked as a producer with plenty of artists who don't know any theory. They just have really good ears. And they'll use these techniques too. They'll just call them something else. They'll say something like, and we just put a lift there into the last chorus. And it's like a lift. Well, that's not a theory term, but I know what you mean. You're modulating up into the chorus. And I don't need to sit there and like mansplain that person into knowing what a modulation is. It's just like what matters is what the music wants. And you don't need to know theory to know that like that lift at the end is going to take it somewhere cool. But what you, what you do need is good taste, I think, to, yeah. to know that that is what needs to happen at that point in your song. So you don't just do this shit. One thing I remember from going to Berkeley was being around a lot of, uh, and pointing it out specifically for my time at Berkeley, not a shit talking Berkeley, but just because I was around a lot of educated musicians, right? So 
a lot of people who are studying very hard to know their shit and they would have songwriting competitions and you would hear these moves all over their songs, all these like perfectly executed key changes and just like all the stuff, like you could go down a list of like the top five modulations you'll hear in like the top five pop songs of all time. And you'll hear that stuff all over these songs. And for some reason, the songs all suck. I never heard a good one <laughs> in my time there. Like they were garbage, but tech on a technical level, all very well executed. And my theory is that they didn't lead with the art side of it. They led with the craft side of it. And so I think it's just important to remember that at the end of the day, what really, really matters, the only thing that matters is how does this feel? How does this make people feel? Like, where is the art taking it? And then you can use your uh, your craft side of it to like really refine it. Or if you really study the craft side of it, you can get to a point where it all happens at the same time, like where you are thinking in terms of art and craft simultaneously. But I just, I need to say a lot of the musicians that everybody listens to who are awesome don't know theory, but there's a big, but, but don't be fooled by that. Their songs are not awesome because they don't know theory they still have great ears. So their ears already understand the theory. They just don't have the words for it. They're still making good decisions because uh, they're awesome. And they do kind of know this stuff. They just don't know that they know this stuff or they don't have the same words for this stuff. I'm basically addressing people who think that learning more will fuck with your creativity or something. I'm so happy to hear you say that because I literally just yesterday or the day before put out a video on this exact topic of the idea that you either that you just don't need music theory or that it's scary to learn because it's gonna ruin your creativity or something like this idea i mean it's not exclusively metal guitar players but a lot of that group specifically say that same phrase a lot and this idea that like either you just don't you just don't need it because so and so doesn't know it or uh yeah or that it's going to ruin it or they're you know just too lazy like it doesn't make you more or less creative or whatever like people know the thing they either they don't know necessarily don't know the names for it but like you're saying they got this they got the ear they got the taste they know what to do with it. There's one situation, though, where it can hurt. I was actually just talking about this with Spiro on a podcast. Like when you're first learning theory and you're learning, quote unquote, rules and like you're consciously thinking about this stuff, you could, while writing, you start thinking theory first because you're actively learning it at that same time. So it's like when you're working on anything, your brain is going to put bring that to the front, right? It's going to be top of mind. So if you're learning like about playing in the right key or something, then when you're writing in that key, like your brain might start asking you questions like, oh, can I go to that note or not? Like it's not technically in that key. And like, that's why I think once you, once you go down that path, you better really go down that path so that you can get past that point of, so, you know, there's the whole, the conscious and unconscious knowledge. If you start down that path, you should work on it hard enough to get to the unconscious knowledge point so that you don't do that to yourself. Yeah. Yeah. It's tough. You've heard probably that 
a little bit of knowledge is very dangerous in certain, you know, there's like knowing everything about a topic is awesome. If you know a little bit about it, then it's you're, you can be actually worse off because you just, you think you know a lot. It's kind of like the Fletcher Munson curve a little bit. And <laughs> music theory can be like that because then you, and especially if you're leaning on it and thinking that you're going to be able to like, like, oh, well, I learned what scale goes with this chord. And so now I know how to write music that's going, you know, that's going to touch people and like make them feel awesome or whatever when in reality all you've done is you're you've taken the first step and that's that can be tough too because it's a long road to get to the amount that is useful that's that you're going to be able to stop worrying about it or whatever or the amount that you can use to shoot yourself in the foot with rather than really uh, use it as a tool to make your music better or whatever well, that's why you got to prioritize what it is that you focus on, in my opinion, and what it is that you feed your brain, right? So if you're feeding your brain really good music and you're prioritizing writing as opposed to prioritizing theory, but you just use theory as a supplement, I think that that's, that's a lot better. Another thing I wanted to mention about this song that I think helps, even though arrangement is not the same thing as songwriting, right? Because like you can change an arrangement. There's an argument to be made that in metal, the arrangement kind of like, I don't know, it like the lines are blurred. Kind of like the way that like the lines are blurred between the definition of what a producer is when they're giving ideas. Like, are they writing? Are they producing? Like, who knows? Like, so with metal, like the way that it sounds, the way that it feels, the way that it hits that's like a part of the song and it's not technically under copyright law. And yes, you could make a whole different arrangement for like a solo guitar in a hotel lobby of a good song. But like this version of the song, the arrangement is a big, big, big part of, of the song itself. And so one of the things that I think also keeps this song interesting is how much the arrangement changes. So it's not just orchestral. It's not just like slamming riffs. You know, it's not just any of those things. Like the arrangement keeps on changing. People oftentimes when they hear this song, they're like, fuck yeah, like love the orchestral stuff. It's like, actually, there's not that much orchestral stuff in it. It's just, it's in at the right points. It's in at the right points to where when it does come in, it's making quite a statement. Then it's gone. It's gone in the choruses. It's gone in the verses. Like it's gone out of a lot of the song on purpose so that when it does come back in, it hits. It hits really, really hard. There's another thing too. Like I love octavers. I use octaves a lot in my writing and there's different ways to present octaves, right? Like you could play them as an octave chord. I guess, I mean, it's really a chord if it's two notes. You can play it as an octave on one mm -hmm. guitar, right? Play like an octave, quote unquote, chord, a dyad. Or you can layer them, right? Like a single notes. You can use an octaver. Like there's different ways to use octaves and they all feel a little different. And that makes a big difference. So in this song, I bring octaves in several different ways, several different times, but like they're always coming in 
arranged a little differently. So like, for instance, in the chorus, there's the lead guitar melody that's doubled with a synth. Over that, I'm using an octaver, an octaver that is that has an octave up above it. So I'm playing an octave down from actually the main thing you're hearing. Over the part we heard earlier where, you know, Doth Riff 1 goes into this octave line, which is just the main theme over Doth Riff 1, they're playing it in actual octaves on one guitar. Over the main theme, there's these arpeggios going the whole time. Those are played as octaves like doubled. So, and they all feel different. They all feel different. And so I encourage people too, that when they're playing with like layers and they're playing with different ways to present an idea to utilize all the different ways, like think about and utilize all the different ways that you can present a type of an idea. If you think about it like enough, eventually it'll just happen that like you just know this part should be done with an octaver. It just like the feel of having an octaver on this part is what this part needs. Like, you know, we're not going to need to experiment every single time, but I, I highly suggest people try to get into the weeds with that stuff. And like, like really think about it. Like if you're into writing guitar harmonies, well, what are the different ways you can present a guitar harmony? You can play it right. Like if you're presenting thirds, you can play it on one guitar as like on two strings or you can split it up between guitar left, guitar right. Or you can present it as a lead guitar harmony down the middle. Or you can do it with a harmonizer. Like there's a bunch of different ways to do it. Or you can have one guitar play it and a synth play the third above it. Like there's so many different ways. And I could just keep on going down a list. But all those things make a difference in how the song uh, feels and whether or not it's interesting over you know over the course of several minutes i think octaves are awesome because it's something that you can add without actually adding any like new pitches to a part you don't really have to write a new thing but you can Mm -hmm. either make a part feel more important by doubling it in octaves or even unison with just a different instrument and give it just a bit more thickness or like I said, importance like to the listener because suddenly it's going to sound very intentional and like you have, you should be paying attention to it or whatever um, without, um, without adding too much to what's going on. And it's, for example, you could play a melody line once and then to give it a little bit of a kick up dynamically, you can just double it in octaves the next time you play it. And rather than just playing it exactly the same way twice, add an octave to it and all of a sudden it's given a new dimension but you haven't you haven't added much but it's it's very noticeable um so that it sounds like you're saying like really mess around with that sort of thing so that you get an idea for where that makes sense to do and in terms of how the song is going to feel how the part is going to feel like you'll just know where to add that mm-hmm. yeah that's a lot that's the same that's kind of i got the idea to bring this up after us talking about theory, how you should learn your theory enough to where you don't have to think about it. Your ear just takes you to the right place. And the same with these arrangement things that I'm not saying that every single song you write, you should sit there and experiment with every different possible arrangement permutation. But the more you try shit out and the more dedicated you are to trying shit out, the more, well, the sooner you're going to get to a point where 
your instinct guides you with this stuff. That's, I think that's where you eventually want to be. And that's also when you start to get to the point where you can use inspiration. I will always say that like the thing Mick Gordon says, which is that amateurs wait for inspiration, pros get the job done, like sit down and work. But let's be real, when you're inspired, that's when the best stuff happens. Like we're all trying to get to that inspired moment. And one of the biggest killers of inspiration is to have a technical, a technical thing in your way. And so the more you experiment with this stuff, the more you're going to be able to just whip that shit right out and know that like, this is what goes here. Or if you whip that shit right out and it doesn't sound right, like you can quickly transition to something else without having to think about it much. Like you're always going to have these the deeper you get into writing, you're going to realize that you're not going to be able to completely divorce yourself from the torture of creation. But the e- the easier you can make it for yourself by getting good with the tools, the the better you're going to be. And there's something else I wanted to say about the chorus in this song. It's very important, just like I said with the verse, that like it's very obvious where the verse is, and that's by design. The chorus being the chorus is also very obvious. There's very few tension notes in it. It's like, as opposed to like all this evil shit going on throughout the song and my 014 stuff, that's not pretty much not happening in the chorus. And if it, the one time that it does happen, it's more in like setting up a dominant chord, but like the chorus feels like nothing else in the song. It's like rhythmically a different feel. The arrangement is different. It's like in a different key, like everything about it is different than anything else in the song. And so you can't confuse it with a verse. You can't confuse it with a bridge. Like it is most definitely the chorus. And I think that your songs should answer those questions for you. Like when you listen back and when other people listen back, they shouldn't be wondering, you shouldn't be like at odds about what the verse or the chorus is. Like the chorus, you got to figure out a way to make that chorus like really be a chorus, meaning the thing that ties it all together. And how do you, how to actually do that is, uh, you know, at the end of the day, it's hard. I can't, give someone a checklist or a recipe to make a good chorus, but all the stuff we've been talking about of like making it different enough of making it lift the song, like making it kind of resolve the song, like all those things, try all those things. Eventually you'll get to a point where you're writing good choruses. Yeah. The sort of technique things that we talk about, if you try them without thinking about like actually using them in something you're going to put out like maybe like just basically sandboxing trying them out testing them and get to the point where you can do it suddenly when you've got that inspiration you're not like learning a new skill in order to get that inspiration to bring it into the world if that's a thing that you that that is going to work with it then you want to be able to you don't want to be doing learning surgery on the battlefield. Yeah, ex- exactly. So that's why, like, for instance, with the Baroque part, it came about after I had spent a few days learning a legit Baroque piece. Like, so by, and like, I do have a background in in classical and orchestral music and all that shit, but it's one thing to like have a background in it. It's another thing for it to be like, right there, easy access. 
by actually taking the time to learn that Bach piece, that made it far more realistic for me to just be able to come up with something. And on Riff Hard, we have this, uh, this thing called King of the Riff, where every month we give people a writing brief and uh, they have to write something according to the brief and hand it in by certain date and then it gets voted on, etc. So this past month, the brief was to write a Baroque metal part. And uh, there are some other specifications, but usually we'll give people references. And I told people, learn this, learn, learn this Bach piece, then go write it. And I don't think anybody did. Uh, I think that they were, they wanted me to give them references of like other metal bands that had used Baroque stuff. And it's like, I'm giving you the keys right here. Like, learn this. You're going to know what to do. Like, just learn this. Get the style into your brain and under your fingers. And then once you try to write something in that style, it'll be far easier than if you're listening to Emperor do it, but not learning it and and trying to emulate that. Good luck. <laughs> that's, uh, that's top-notch advice. And highly recommend that all of you out there approach things like that. Really live in that stuff and... G- get it to like get your get your shit together so that when that inspiration hits you're you're ready for it because if you're a well-oiled machine first of all the inspiration is coming in a lot more often if you've worked on other thi- if you're just working on stuff you're doing the work and then also when it hits you're going to know what to do with it so uh, one thing that i really wanted to ask about was how the orchestral parts like at what point because you said that he'd orchestrated like this whole seven minute mess that you gave him. And then you were like, sorry, Jesse, (laughs) luckily for him, like I imagine since he's doing this all the live long day, like we talked about, it does it for a living. It was probably less of a loss for him. Like if I do orchestration, like it's all getting used because I, you know, because I put everything into it. He's a real good sport with me. Uh, but hey, I told him up front. <laughs> I told him up front, be ready. Yeah, be ready. You were killing his children. Yeah, but dude, he's he he gets it. And the thing is, yes, because he does it all day long. He's much more comfortable with stuff getting cut. And same with me. Like I don't write all day every day, but like I write a lot. And so that's why I'm comfortable with like yeah. killing ideas where I've worked with people who write like four yeah. riffs a year. So uh, <laughs> killing one of their shitty riffs, like I, I've worked with people who write four riffs a year, one being good, the rest being garbage. Like, so if you cut those three, you're cutting 75% of their <laughs> output. Like Ugh. that leads to some tense situations, but about Jesse and the orchestration, at what point does he come in with it you were asking yeah how did that work for this song and for other stuff you're working on okay so basically i write very orchestrally even though i write on guitar like i think a lot of my parts like uh you hear it in some of this doth stuff you'll hear it in future stuff if you take a lot of the stuff i write and arrange it for orchestra it'll sound like orchestral music not like metal with like orchestral instruments and it's just my background like I was brought up around that stuff I studied that stuff since I was a little kid like uh, I've done my time with orchestral music um so a lot 
of it is that once I write something, I get it transcribed immediately into uh, Guitar Pro. Um, and like, I don't write with Guitar Pro, but I get the stuff I'm writing transcribed right away. So right away, there's a MIDI version of, of the stuff. And I will give that to Jesse. Now, I want to be clear. This isn't like me giving Jesse my shit and just being like, here, you must use this. But like, I, it, what it does is it gives him like a correct starting point to where there's no room for interpretation about what the notes are starting point wise. And so then he will take that and start building an orchestral arrangement and his own counter melodies and his own parts based off of that. Sometimes he'll keep it the same. Sometimes it'll be completely different. So, you know, whatever, whatever works for the song really. But I, I try to give him as correct of a starting point as possible, just because I feel like it's asking a lot of somebody to like get music like this and just write a complex orchestral arrangement to it. Like there's a lot of room for, there's a lot of room for misunderstanding, a lot of room for like wrong notes. Like in my demos, I don't play super tight. Like I'm not worried about playing tight. Like I'm worried about writing. And so if you heard some of my demos, like, I don't know, you would be wondering if I was having a seizure or something. So I, I don't want him to like have to guess what, something is supposed to be so that's why i give him the transcription and the midi the midi version of things so that there's a starting point and so he gets involved as soon as like there's something worth getting involved with i guess um so whether it's like man i need like i need some help with like this song i'm stuck with or like i want to finish this first and then then get your take on it. Or if he's really into something I started, then he'll tell me and we'll bring him in early. There's no real like set way of doing it. And he can operate by ear too, but in general, because of like the level of layering that I do in my writing, I think it's better for everyone that there's some sort of a score. Yeah. For this song specifically, because you had all of that like he did all that um and then you said you like cut out a lot of it and then you had the direction for the song so then you finished it off um did he then go back and uh add some more and stuff and finalize it yeah he basically started over kind of yeah and we used a lot of the original stuff he did like for instance the chorus didn't exist in the original version. Um, now it has this like really cool synth wave sounding synth under it. You know, like he then worked off of what the new version of the song is. And, but I was really clear, like when I cut it all up, like I was very clear about, man, this shit rules. Please don't change this. Like this, this is a winner. Like, even though I cut the shit up out of the song, like, like, this is gold. So please, like you got it the first time. Cause when you start cutting up people's work, like they might think that you want them to change right. everything. So I try to, we have a lot of communication going about like what's good, what to change. And so, yeah, he, he kind of did a new version that was based off of the old version with 
some new elements thrown in. But the other thing I was super clear about was nothing on these riffs. These riffs stay metal, <laughs> pure metal. So pure. Okay, cool. Now you've got all of. We've talked about pretty much every part of the song, the sort of origin of each of them, and how you went about it. So now you've got the full thing, um, all the parts written. Basically, you're a producer yourself, but you've also you've also uh, you recorded this with. Yens, right? Or did you just, or did he just mix it? He just mixed it. So Andrew Wade did the vocals. Okay. And John Douglas, he recorded the guitars and did all the edits and stuff. And then uh, Krim went to an engineer that he works with in Austria. A bassist uh, went to an engineer near him. But like basically, me and John Douglas were like the central HQ for the production. So everything kind of like lived off of John's computer. We had John be the person that sends people versions to work off of so that there isn't like versioning errors and it doesn't turn into like, <laughs> dude, 232 <laughs> tracks on this song, seven musicians on it. Like it could be a catastrophe very easily. So we decided that John Douglas is like the, like I said, HQ for our stuff and that's what we're doing for the rest of the album too and then yeah so then he just took care of making sure that andrew wade for instance got the right the right tracks to produce vocals off of for instance so that's the the engineering portion of it like you guys that's who actually tracked the parts did you have anyone working on a in a product in a producer capacity in terms of the like the non-technical stuff. Did you bounce these ideas off of anyone outside of the band? I mean, Andrew Wade with the vocals, like we gave him full authority to rewrite parts if he wanted to, whatever he wanted to do, like we were good with full trust. And uh, because I suck as a vocal producer. I know for a fact that that is not true because you produced my vocals for not one, but two in Virtue songs. Well, three, actually. Those did come out good, but it's different with my own music, man. <laughs> yeah, that can be very tough. It's different with my own music, and, like, the music side of it is so involved. And, like, I have personal experience with Sean Z working with great vocal producers. Like, I know what he's capable of when you get him with the right producer. Like, for instance, when he did the concealers with Sukoff, like that came out great. Like the actual mix doesn't not too pleased with the mix like that. I don't think it showed off just how sick the vocal production is. But like I know that like Sean is such a skilled vocalist. He's he's unbelievably skilled. And he's one of those people that like you throw an idea at him and he can do it like right away, like basically anything. So. I knew that like, if we get him with a genius producer, a genius vocal producer, that's only going to complement this stuff. I have my hands full with the music side of this and I'm not a genius vocal producer. I'm good at it, but like I wanted a genius vocal producer, like yeah. straight up. I'll say it again, a genius vocal producer, which is what Andrew Wade is. And like I said, just, I didn't, me and Sean worked on, the demo versions of this so like sean came up with stuff and i helped him refine it like ask questions like 
what the fuck does this line mean? Uh, <laughs> this makes no sense. Like, uh, but like at a certain point, I backed off and just trusted that Sean and Andrew have this handled. And they did. The vocals came out great. Best he's ever sounded. But I guess uh, you could consider my role more like an executive producer to where I was like hiring the team. And like, I think it's important to work with people that you know are going to be able to like do the thing right and fulfill the vision so that when you have them working on stuff, you're not questioning it, right? With Andrew, which Andrew's an interesting choice, right? Because he's not, he's not an extreme metal guy. Like he's known for a lot of pop punk. He does heavier stuff, but like, it's not like from our world, I guess. But I've known him for so long. I know how creative he is and I know how twisted he is. And like, I knew that like, because Doth needs catchy vocals, like it, he's going to, I knew he would understand the need for something catchy. And I knew that he, it's in his skill set to do that. And I knew that like, because we're not a pop punk band and like he can go dark and I know his capability for being dark because I know like what his art like he's also an illustrator. He's a very, very creative person that I've known for a long time. And I know that his typical clientele just don't go there with him. Like that's not what they ask of him. But I knew that like because of his pop sensibilities, his technical expertise with production and his <laughs> that inner darkness that he'd be uh that he was perfect as a opposed to like someone who is like a death metal guy or something most of them don't don't go beyond the pizza yeah well look i know lots of great death metal guy producers but like i wanted someone with a pop sensibility so andrew's creativity was was just the right dude we're finishing the record with him awesome i uh meant to ask this but failed to do so so uh and you you sort of answered this a little bit you said that you guys worked on some of the demos together at what point in the process, did he start adding vocal parts? Like, did you have his vocals for the chorus after you, like, were you thinking about that while you were writing the chorus, for example, like what the vocals would sound like or something like that? What basically did you write it and then he put something on top of it or were you bouncing it back and forth at all? Or how did that work? No, uh, no bouncing back and forth when the music is happening. However, I am thinking when I am writing a song, once we're past the, these are just a bunch of ideas. And like, this is a song, like I said, like things are set up to be a verse, set up to be a chorus. So like, I'm thinking very clearly, I don't want any fucking vocals before this part. The vocals come in here. As soon as like we were there, that's when Sean comes in. Cause uh, otherwise he'll just scream over everything. <laughs> <laughs> And I don't want him wasting his time either, yeah. right? Like, so he actually did vocals over the original, original seven-minute mess <laughs> version of the song. Everybody put in a lot of work on that. that yeah, thing. <laughs> it seems like it, ha- it sounded like it had to happen for the for the final thing to happen. So, Krim didn't. Luckily for him, <laughs> he came in once it was actually a thing. But what? But actually, like when Sean did vocals over the original version. That started to make it real clear to me. I don't want vocals over certain parts. Like, this is not supposed to be a vocal part. Like, this is just supposed to be a riff. And um, from previous experience, 
I've noticed this might sound bad, but like I I not a tyrant, but I've noticed that we need to trust my instincts because my instincts have created the songs that people like by this band. And when I don't trust my instincts, that ends up with the stuff that people don't give a fuck about with this band. And like, that's just always how it's gone. And so if I feel strongly about like, there should be nothing here, like I'm going to impose that friend in a friendly way. I'm going to be like, this sucks, but like may communicate it clearly because I feel like, I don't know. Like, I feel like I've, my instincts are right for what Doth should be. That that's pretty important. And but the thing is, we're on the same page. Like the other dudes feel that way as well. So makes it easy. <laughs> yeah, it makes it easy. We're not at, we're not at odds about that. Like I'm not yeah. saying that they don't have a say or anything like that. Always take people's opinions into consideration and stuff, but like we're letting my instincts be the North star with what we do. Cause there's always 8 million different things you could do in a song. Right. So we're letting my gut instinct be what guides us. And so if like, it's not supposed to have vocals, it's not supposed to have vocals. Now there is one part, one of the other songs we haven't released where Andrew and Sean did vocals anyways, and it came out fucking great. So always open to having my mind changed, but Oh, and when I heard that, I didn't feel like we were making a mistake. It wasn't like certain things in the past where I just gave in because like we needed to keep, to keep the a lineup together because yeah. <laughs> we had tours. <laughs> like it le legit made the part better. So I, I think it's important for people to have confidence in their instincts. And if they don't, then you need to work on your instincts. No matter what, if, you, if you're all actually on the same page in terms of what you actually want is for the song to be great yes then at the very least you should consider that above all any opinion or sort of personal feeling about the thing it's like okay well it's not like i don't like your idea or something because of anything other than it isn't working in this part of the song or for the song overall you yeah well, and i do that to myself all the time i've cut so many of my own ideas that I think are good, but they just like, they're just not right in the song. Like they make the song too long or the context doesn't make any sense. And you end up cutting parts that you worked really hard on, but it's, it's important to not let the sunk cost fallacy get to you when writing Uh sunk cost fallacy being where for people who aren't familiar, it's, I already, invested this much money or time into something i gotta go with it like i worked so hard like we all have this instinct in us or this this drive to want to hang on to things that we put a lot of time or money into effort but you have to divorce yourself of that it doesn't matter how long or hard you worked on something if it doesn't make the song better it's got to go. And sometimes that's going to be painful because sometimes you will have worked on something for weeks or months. And not just that, maybe it actually is a really cool part. Uh, but if it doesn't make the song better, just use it for another song. Man, I heard Concealers demos from our album, The Concealers, recently. 
there's this one song called The Unbinding Truth, which is my favorite song on the concealers. And the original version has this, this section that's like a minute long in the intro that got cut. And at the time that it got cut, I was so fucking bummed. And now I hear it and I'm like, yeah, that part's cool, but uh, good choice, Jason Sukoff. <laughs> good, good choice cutting that. Like, I worked my ass off on that part, and it's a good part. Hearing the song with it, it's like, what's it even there for? People aren't going to hear the hard work that went into it. They're just no. going to either enjoy it or not. Correct. Get bored or not. You don't get to, like, hold up an, a, your timesheet at the show and be like, look at how much time I put in this part. You therefore will enjoy it. No, it doesn't happen. That shit doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter also because how many times have we heard of some huge, amazing song that was written in one night or like an hour by some artist and they're not lying? That happens. Like yeah. the amount of time you spend on a piece of art doesn't determine if the art's good or not. Boom. <laughs> This brings up, a, or the thing that you said about listening back to old demos and stuff like that. Um, so how is this uh, experience for these new songs different from how you used to write with the band back when you did those earlier albums? How was that different? Was it more collaborative or similar? Our best stuff was always like this. So when I started the band, I had a co-writer, um, the student, Mike Cameron, you know, he was in the band from like 99 till 2008. And he was kind of like my other half writing wise, but still it was very much like this where I would write and we would, or we would write together and just refine the shit out of it and have a huge backlog of material and it really wasn't different where it started to get different was when Mike was no longer in the band and I made the mistake of taking it on other people's ideas that weren't Mike. Um, <laughs> this time around, like I said, I'm being a lot more, I'm being a lot more like strict about, about maintaining the vision. Cause I feel like when I, when I got lax about it, we started like, that's where our self-titled album happened. And I'm not going to say that album's a mistake, but it's definitely our worst album. And that's the album that I had the least, like where I was trying to be democratic. It's by far our worst album, like as the least catchy songs, it's got a lot of really cool parts and a lot of really great playing, but like the songs just aren't quite, they're not quite there. And it's because I was being, democratic and so like this is a lot more like the way the band started where like it's very clearly defined who's writing or who's starting the writing and then you just incorporate people from there now one of the big big differences now is well back then i didn't have a 20-year backlog so one of the things that i did like i said was i got the original demos transcribed and learn them so that I'd be in the original headspace. And actually, there is a riff in this song. If you go to uh, Raphael's solo through this melody I wrote, so like at two minutes and 52 seconds, those eighth notes underneath that solo, the third section of the solo, that's actually a riff from our first song from 1999. I always liked that riff, and I always wanted to use it, and I found a way to use it in this song. 
it's almost like a texture riff underneath all those leads. That's from the original demo. Um, and there's a lot of stuff throughout the new material where I took, took those, those influences, but uh, man, my process for getting creative hasn't changed. Like it's still me doing my thing. I'm a lot more confident in, in myself and what I bring to the table. And I'm a lot better at communication. So the years of running URM and riff hard, the years of like having some things go well, some things not go so well in my career and like analyzing what was my part in this thing falling apart. Cause uh, you know, I, I'm not one of those people who thinks that they don't have a, any blame in a situation. So, you know, I've had my successes and I've had my catastrophes and I've analyzed my catastrophes and um, figured out how can I, how can I do a better job working with people? And URM and Riff Hard are a testament to me having figured out how to work with people. Cause it's not like we haven't had challenges. And so I have taken that into this new version of Doth and I'm very, very upfront now about like how I think things should be while also trying to really keep in mind how other people feel about it and making sure that they feel fulfilled with the pro with the project and that they feel like they're growing from it and that it's fun and that like, it's an awesome thing. So, which is actually, you know, it's a challenging thing to do uh, like inside my head, but in reality, it's actually been the easiest it's ever been because we're all on the same page. And so part of it is that back in the past, I would get attached to people because I had this scarcity mindset. It was, you got to keep in mind, the metal scene was very different 15 years ago in terms of quality of musicians. Um, dude, it was really hard to find people capable of playing this stuff back then. The thing about the old Doth music is that it's deceptively technical. So it, it you need great players for it. And there weren't great players everywhere like, like there are now. Um, so this time around, it was a lot easier to find great players where they, they're cool with how this works. So um, I'm not shitting on anyone from the past. I think they're all excellent musicians, some of the best in the world. Um, and, you know, I think they're great, but not everything is meant to last forever. And, you know, obviously it didn't work out. Uh, but why the reasons for why it didn't work out like is you know right now i'm actively leaning into making sure that that doesn't happen again and so a big part of it is working with people who are down with how this operates so if they're not if someone's not down with me being the main writer and like this being my vision then we probably they probably shouldn't be in this band and that's not to say that they're not great you know if we're talking about playing in this band, they're probably great. So that's not to say they're not great. It just means this isn't the right situation for them. And it's not worth, it's not worth the heartache for either of us or the time wasted. I'll just work with people who are down. And uh, yeah, one of the keys here is that everyone in the band has other shit going on. 
So Jesse doesn't need to be the main writer in Doth because he's writing shit all day long. For so many people, Krim doesn't need to like alpha his way through this shit and like be a tyrant because he's got septic flesh. He's got his YouTube channel. He's got all kinds of stuff. Sean's got Sinsanum. Like it's important for people. I think that's one of my requirements is that anyone in the band has something else or a few other things going on so that when they work with me, they're cool with how this one works and like having something cut or whatever doesn't interfere with their ability to feel fulfilled. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. So they're, if they were putting so much of their self into it all the time and then you, you know, cut something that they, that they wrote for it or whatever, and they've got nothing else, then they're, they might, I don't know. Make might it, not uh, go so well. Might not go so well. That's yeah. not to say that they don't have a say. Of course they have a say. It's just like, we're cool with how, we're cool. It's a good dynamic between us and everybody has their own creative outlets. I have other shit going on as well too. So like, I'm a lot more comfortable with, with certain things that I wasn't comfortable with before. The reason I'm saying that is because I don't want it to sound like I'm their boss or anything because I'm not like, it's very much an equal say kind of thing. We split everything evenly. Like we take votes, we do all that. It's just like, as far as my role goes, we're all on the same page that like, I'm kind of the North star when it comes to the vision and direction of the music. Yeah. That makes sense to me. So on a a sort of similar note, are there plans to take this band live at any point and yes who's gonna play those solos are you gonna learn them jesus man (laughs) fuck no i'm not gonna learn them (laughs) so first of all we're a ways off from that because we're not going to tour until after the album comes out we already talked to Raphael. he's gonna do some live stuff with us however he's got his band obsidious he's got his own shit Let's just be real. We don't know what things are going to look like a year or a year and a half from now. So I don't want to like say, yeah, Raphael's going to do it. Like, what if he can't? But uh, but we've talked to him. He's down to do some live work with us. We've talked to a few other fucking badass motherfuckers. Dick rippers is what I yeah, call Yeah, man. There's going to be, there will be someone or more than one who do this live with us. So I certainly am not learning those solos. <laughs> I think that was my main thought. I was like, not that I don't think that you could play them, maybe. Uh, I don't know. Um, <laughs> with a, with some, you know, I mean, it just sounds like nobody could play them. <laughs> I'm not going to believe that that anybody played those until I see see some uh, video evidence. That's that shit's just crazy. It's crazy. There's a part in the Baroque section at the end where it goes into this counterpoint thing. And I wrote it, I wrote every every note of it, but man, like I was struggling with it. It's at 3.44. Ah. So that, there's like some huge string skips going on in those arpeggios. Like it's not super fast, but like it is all over the place. And I was, I spent like a month on that just... Like I played everything leading up to that point, but then there, I just could like I could play it, but just, we'd have to piece it together in the studio and go like a bar at a time. And it just like, I just couldn't get it mastered. And 
I asked Spiro to play it. Of course, he learned in like a day. <laughs> and so, and it, it sounded great. So, dude, I am not above having... That's why I work with such great musicians is I know what my skills are. My skills are writing. My skills are vision. My skills are making shit happen in this world. Like something wasn't happening before. It is now. I'm good at that. Olympic level guitar playing, not so much. Like I, I just don't have that. Like the way these these dudes do. The chat is talking about uh, Marty Friedman and Megadeth right now, and that's, I mean, like Dave Mustaine, pretty awesome guitar player, but not like the not like the guys that he gets. That's why it's a it's a band. It's not just the one man show. And he is obviously the creative force behind that band because if you listen to their music from any era. The signature stuff is always the same. So, and that's how you know, like if a band changes lineup and one person stays the same and then it still sounds like that band, guess what? Yeah. <laughs> There's a, re Opeth, another great example, Opeth, even though they've changed their sound some, there's a reason for why it always sounds like Opeth and that's Mike. Yeah. Uh, there's a reason for why Megadeth, like them or hate them, like their old stuff or their new, doesn't matter. It sounds like Megadeth because of Dave Mustaine. And he works with some of the most amazing genius level guitar players on the planet, like in history. And that's a perfect example. I feel like, and I'm not going to put myself in the category with Damon Stan or anything like that. I'm not saying that, but I feel like guys like us who are more like the writing, like vision for the band types, it's like a perfect symbiotic relationship with virtuosos. They need us, we need them, kind of thing. <laughs> yeah, because nobody's going to listen to them just do their crazy sweeps all day long. It's not to shit on them either, because like some of them write really, really well. But it's like you just see that these partnerships work historically for a reason, and um, it's because like one person is better at one thing that the other person is not. Like, try to imagine Megadeth without that level of soloing, like that level of soloing elevates that band yeah of course it does so i don't know for me personally it's really important to work with virtuosos and well, that's kind of a requirement in this band and that's not me i'm not a virtuoso i'm <laughs> good but not not like that um and of course the sort of level that a virtuoso like what even is a virtuoso is constantly the bar is being raised and so you're getting more modern type of virtuoso or like a just a, maybe just a different one or a new a new type of freak <laughs> to keep it fresh when reforming this band there was a lot of skepticism from people of like how are you going to pull that off because the level of playing was pretty extreme for the time period even though our, like i said our songs are not like Arcspire or something but like the level of musicianship on that old stuff is insane and i was met with a lot of skepticism for doing it with new people and understandably so i get it because like if i had a vision in my head of a band that was gone for over a decade and i thought that the way they sounded was because of the way that i know them or remember them then i would be very skeptical to hear that like the non-virtuoso dude is continuing it and I know that they didn't know how the band operated or what my role was in the band, like, because I never really made that very public. Like, uh, I've never given a shit about Spotlight. So 
I never put that out there. So whatever opinions or ideas people had about a reunion that were negative, like they're not going to be able to do this, like that never pissed me off because I get it. Like, why would you not distrust that this is going to be good? But I'm always going to be searching for what I think is like that next evolution in music and guitar playing. That's not to say that like I see people as expendable because I certainly don't. But in starting the band basically from scratch all over again, well, that was a huge opportunity to find like people that gave me that same feeling as I got back in the day when encountering some of those musicians, like, holy fuck, this was unimaginable to me. Like, I didn't know people could play this well. Like, this is crazy. Uh, like, it's awesome, man. Spiro and Raphael give me that feeling. They're so ridiculously amazing. But we couldn't tell people that they were playing with us. And they're not the only people who are doing uh, leads for us on the new stuff, but we couldn't announce them. So like this whole time with our reunion, people don't even know if we're going to have like some lead guitarist on it. So I understand their skepticism. Yeah. I mean, the public perception of anything is always going to be a, a weird version of events. And I mean, if you think about what the average non-musician thinks about what a band is, how a recording is made, all this stuff, like they're still picturing people going into a studio and recording live all together, you know, and like there's this, like they all write the song together like it's fucking Sesame Street or something. Like they don't, uh, they don't really have any conception of how it's actually done, how the politics or, or just inner band dynamics go and all that stuff. Um, so if, if you don't explicitly explain how it works, they might not get it. Or they'll assume the worst or some weird version of how things go down. And that's just how it's going to be. Even if you do explicitly explain, that's just how it's, that sucks. Yeah. Well, I'm explaining stuff here because we're having a podcast, but like, in my opinion, even if I didn't, all I have to do is listen to the new stuff and that explains it for people. Yeah. They're worried about us not sounding like us or something like that. It's like, well, you hear the new stuff. What does it sound like? Yeah. Does it sound like us or not? Why do you think that is? Like, answer that for yourself. Well, I think that that is a great place to stop it because we're also because we're cruising past two hours. Also, because I, I actually think you answered all of my questions, which is pretty rare. I mean, everybody, they all try. <laughs> and I learn so much shit in every one of these podcasts that I do. Oh, I'm sure. I do these more for me than anything else. I like to pick people's brains. And we always go off on great tangents. But I think maybe, be I, I don't know if it's just because you're a more focused person or because you also have not one, but two of your very own podcasts that you're running, you're, you know how to keep it on task. So uh, thank you so much for not just for being here, for our, once again, sixth podcast episode together. Sixth of more. So far, but also for actually uh, keeping us, keeping it on task and, and really giving me <laughs> good in-depth answers to the questions and, and good tangents that were also very informative. So, first of all, for, um, you know, for AL's other podcast, in case you guys are curious, it's the Unstoppable Recording Machine URM podcast and the Riff Hard podcast that he does with John Brown, which you can also find on the Yield 
podcast uh, everywhere that they are sold. And the new Doth track is out now that you heard today. You can find the Spotify link in the description below. Anything you can reveal about when we might hear some new, um, more singles or anything you want to tell us about on that front? Probably somewhere around every couple of months for the next year or so until the album is ready to come out. There's something like that. There's going to be some sort of a release. We just recorded two fucking sick covers. Fucking sick covers. Mm-hmm. Um, we have two other Doth songs that are totally done, ready to go, like mixed and mastered. So there's at least four, plus everything we've been writing for the album. But like, there's at least four, like just ready to go. And uh, the album, look, I'm not going to say this f- for a fact, but as of now, the mix is scheduled for the end of August. So with Jens. And so that means that soon we're going to have other songs to release too. So we're, cool. we're going to be putting stuff out at a semi-frequent clip because, uh, you know, they got to reestablish the band. Yeah. One song is not enough. A lot of bands like do like a reunion thing and the, they're like, we're working on new material when really they just put together one one song so that they could go tour so they'd have a, like something exciting to put them back on the map but you've got you're you're gonna have a whole album so this is that's how people can know that it is proper and not just some uh i don't know money grab or a, what, what money a, what, grab <laughs> whatever that <laughs> the bands come you know just you know what i mean like, more bands like do money suck money suck what's the, yeah the, the uh reverse money grab but, you know, like bands will do that kind of thing. But anyway, the, all that to say that that is clearly not what's happening here. Um, you're really putting in the time and effort to promote it, especially on the number one outlet for promoting your music. The House Songs Are Made podcast here on the Trey Xavier channel uh, and on the new House Songs Are Made podcast YouTube channel, which is where this is actually going to live. So um, everyone who is enjoying this, please hit the link in the description um, to go to the How Songs Are Made podcast channel where all of these interviews are going to live as VODs. Um, The live stream will continue to happen right here on the Trey Xavier channel for the time being at least. And then I'm going, then they'll be private and then I'm going to put the the final videos on the new channel as well as clips um, and shorts and stuff like that. And uh, for all previous episodes as audio episodes, just as you find them streaming everywhere, you can find that at the link in the description as well, or just on Spotify and everywhere that you find your regular podcast content. HowSongsAreMadePodcast.com is also where you can find uh, basically all of these. Al, thank you so much for taking the time to do this. Um, these are always a fantastic time. Congratulations on putting out some awesome new music and the band back together and everything that's that I know is just coming along, coming down the pipeline for Doth. Well, thank you very much. Uh, thanks for actually uh, asking. Engage- I wasn't, I mean, I would have expected no less, but still got to say thanks for asking such engaging questions. Absolutely. Like I said, I, I do this so that I can learn. And it's just nice that other people are here to learn as well. And uh, so uh, I will hopefully talk to you real soon. And uh, everybody at home watching and listening, um, this is just the beginning of season two. 
and uh, keep your eyes and ears peeled for more. And we'll see y'all real soon.